0: God's Word, I'm looking to turn to Mark chapter number 8, we'll spend our time this morning Mark chapter number 8, we'll begin our reading in verse number 1 I'm actually going to take a larger portion of scripture this morning I'm going to read it um, as we go, so I'm going to take the first 10 verses and initially read it, and then as we progress in the passage, and it'll be fairly quickly this morning I and mean, then you'll see why in just a moment, and um, I'll read those as we go if you would, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word out of reverence for it. Willing, really enable. We'll read the first 10 verses of Mark chapter number 8. You read these words, verse number 1. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called His disciples to Him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry, how is this good? then his disciples answered him how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness and he asked them how many loaves do you have and they said seven so he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before them and they set them before the multitude they also have a, had a they also had a few small fish And having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled. And they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. Immediately got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. Let's pray. Again, Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to gather. Father, more than that, we thank you for um, the fact that this is not just an ordinary gathering. Um, defined by our culture, by the world, Uh, Father, but the gathering of God's people out of the world and unto Christ. Um, Father, we trust that um, your presence is among us because your people are here. Father, your bride is represented, and we praise you for that because only you could have secured that in your Son by the power of your Spirit. But Father, we gather around your word, whether we sing it, whether we pray it. Father, whether we preach it or whether we fellowship around it, the preeminent um, um, thing, Father, the preeminent um, piece of our worship, Father, is your word, your voice. Um, God, it uh, represents your character, your nature, who you are, what you desire, your will for us, Father. And your spirit takes it to the depths of our heart, Father, dividing even uh, the very thoughts and intents that we have. It reaches the places that man, no man, no other man can go. Uh, so, Father, we pray that you would do that, even now as we come to your Word, that you would um, utilize it in a way that only the Spirit can, Father, make application, even where I don't. Um, oftentimes, you do that. Um, I love to hear, Father, uh, of times when the Word is being preached or the Word is being read and you accomplish things, Father, never do that this morning. Would you help me just to be faithful to the Word, to present it, Father, in a in a faithful way? And God, would you do what you desire to do with it to make us more like your son? I pray that us as individuals, us as families, and us as Christ Bible Church would walk away today looking more like Christ, Father, um, that we may not have met in vain. So God, make this time meaningful and use it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Mark chapter 8, verse number 1 through 10. Uh, may sound somewhat familiar to many of you. Um, I know that some of you haven't been with us quite that long, but um, without a doubt, you're aware of the, um, a previous portion of Scripture that you'll even find within the book of Mark and within every other gospel. All four gospels um, contain at least one of the same miracles, and you find that miracle back in Mark chapter number 6, verse 30 through 44, where the Lord Jesus Christ feeds the 5,000. This is one of the lesser known uh, miracles of our Lord. It is what we would know as the feeding of the 4,000. And when I read that, it may have sounded extremely familiar. actually this passage of scripture is, uh, may be lesser known to most of the Christian church, but it's not lesser known to the skeptics. The skeptics love this portion of scripture. The liberals love this portion of Scripture because they don't believe that it was part of the original. At least some of them don't. And they don't just for that very reason because their shares, um, it shares with Mark chapter 6 um, various similarities. And many believe that um, as a result of Whatever reason you want to give, I don't want to give all the reasons this morning um, because I don't want to give that much attention to the skeptics because I believe it's the preserved Word of God and that it is given to us for a particular reason. But there's many who believe that this passage was just kind of inserted by a scribe or somebody else um, at some point in time uh, for whatever purpose that they desired to make. Um, We reject that notion, although we do agree with them that there are a lot of similarities. And that's what you're going to see this morning. You're going to see as we trek through this portion of Scripture very quickly. I'm not going to spend a great deal of time because I spent a great deal of time weeks ago on the feeding of the 5,000. And the ultimate goal is the same, uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ desires for us to, um, to focus in on Him and the fact that He is the one who satisfies the needs of all mankind, not only the Jew, but also here the Gentile. And that actually the reason of contention or the purpose of contention that the skeptics have is that this is just another passage that is being reiterated or being moved from one uh, chapter of the Bible to the other. So what's the point? You know, oftentimes that's how we read it. Like we just read Mark chapter 6, so we just skim through this. But that's probably the exact reason why our Lord records it two times. That this is one of those times that you're going to find that the point of this, that it's reiterated in the life of the disciples is one, of the, one of the things that's going to be emphasized um, is the fact that they didn't get the point and that it needs to be re-emphasized. It needs to be reiterated. The number one reason that I believe that this is a part of Scripture is because Jesus himself later on, and I think it's uh, verse number 17 of this passage, actually argues that this is a different account. In verse seventeen he says, "Why do you reason because you have no bread? do you not yet perceive or understand? Is your heart still hardened? having eyes do you not see, having ears, do you not hear, and do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up And they said to him, Twelve also when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large full or how many bas- large full baskets?" of fragments did you take up and they said seven so he said to them how is it you do not understand the point being jesus um, demarcates between the two accounts brings them both together um and teaches the, and, and to bring to their understanding that they don't understand and that it needs to be re-emphasized and it needs to be reiterated and it needs to be retaught and it needs to be re-preached and they need to see it again uh, so that they can finally put the dots together Uh, One of the dangers of coming to a passage like this this morning is that you've heard it before, right? That this has already been emphasized, especially in recent days. That's actually the point of the passage that Jesus makes to the disciples. That we are oftentimes hard-headed, hard-hearted, dull of hearing, and slow to perceive. Thus, God often has to take us like we take our children on many days and say those same questions... How do you not understand? Haven't I said this a hundred times already? But let me say it one more time. That is the nature of life. That is our nature. That's the nature of the disciples. Even as disciples and learners, we don't come to the we don't bring to the table this morning an utter perfection. We long for that day, um, but we often come with a lack of understanding that maybe. The same sermon that we heard a few weeks ago, we need to hear again because the lack of application in our lives since then shows the lack of perception or the understanding um, that we have about the truth that we just heard. So oftentimes you'll find Jesus reminding them. Oftentimes you'll find Paul reminding us. Oftentimes in the Old Testament you'll find Moses reminding them because God tells him to remind them because we are so slow. So we come again to this portion of Scripture to remind us of some tremendous truths. Again, just to remind you, um, Jesus has finished His... Um, year-long ministry in Galilee, um, which would have been in the nation of Israel, and he's crossed over into the border of Gentile territory. Um, Why? Uh, Simply because he wanted to. (laughs) Um, He has a desire to reach the Gentiles as well as the Jews. His primary ministry, though, is going to be totally outweighed by his ministry to the Jew first and then to the Gentile or then to the Greek. But his um, desire was always to reach the entirety of the world. And it could very well be that he's living out what he just taught to a syro phoenician woman, um, that even though the children get the bread, the dogs get the crumbs. And she recognizes and Jesus um, commends and submits to um, her desire um, in faith, great faith, um, to give her a few of the crumbs. And that's what we saw in the previous passage. Well, he's going throughout the Gentile region, through Tyre and Sidon, and through an area called Decapolis. And he's doing just that. He's dropping crumbs along the way. Um, and if you were to go to Matthew chapter 15, you would read of just the phenomenal miracles that are happening in the Gentile region um, that are very similar to what happened in uh, Jewish regions. He's healing the lame. He's healing the deaf. He's healing the blind. He's doing miraculous things. Why? Because uh, Because of what John tells us and what Mark tells us and what Matthew tells us. Um, that the Gospels were written and these miracles were recorded for the same reason that they were done, that they might believe on Jesus Christ that he is the Son of God. This isn't the first time that he's probably preached or taught to these people, though. If you were to remember back in Mark chapter 5, I believe it is, um, that Jesus actually encounters a demon-possessed man locked in tombs, right? Um, Where was he from? Well, the Bible taught us that he was from Decapolis. What does Jesus encourage that man to do once the demon is out? Well, he encourages that man to go back to Decapolis and proclaim the great works that Christ had done. So it could very well be that the throngs are all around him for one particular reason or various, because the gospel went forth into this man and it could not contain it. Um, Thus, he went back and uh, proclaimed the works that Christ had done, that he's able to um, overcome the power of demonic entities and to free him from the bondage and the slavery of sin. So it could very well be that as Jesus um, has, is coming to the Gentile area that is not totally new that this man from Decapolis and maybe others has already set the table for them to sit down and to receive um, God's word. Um, so while, so, and that's what you read in verse number one. In those days, the multitude being very great, so a great multitude having nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have the compassion on the multitude, because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on their way, for some of them have come from very far. So while there's a lot of similarities, there's various differences between the two accounts, which will lead us to believe that this is a totally different account if you just didn't take Jesus on his word. Um, one of those is, is that there have been people here with him for three days now. The Gentiles are hungry, not only for food, but for the word of God. Uh, for possibly just the miracles, uh, for the anomaly of having a, a miracle-working man, a supernatural account, and they want to see more. So you, see, you, you read here that initially that these people are with Jesus for um, three days total. And one of the differences is, is that you read that Jesus has compassion on them. You say, well, I thought in the previous passage that he looked at them and he has compassion. And that's true as well. But here is the only time in all of the Gospels and all the way throughout the Word of God that we have recorded of Jesus actually um, saying that he has compassion upon anyone. Um, there are many references to Jesus' compassion. Mark one forty-one. we we've already read in this Gospel, many other places, Matthew, Luke, a number of other Gospel writers refer to his compassion. But in all of those counts and places, this, it's only human observation. Um, He did certain things, acts of service that would generally indicate compassion. You would look at someone and you would say, man, that person is a compassionate person. Why? Because they do these things. Mark writes that Jesus had compassion. Why? Because um, he looked out upon the people and he saw them as sheep having no shepherd. Thus he acted. He taught them the word of God. He fed them. It looks as if he has compassion. This is actually the only recorded place in all of the gospels that I can tell um, or that I can see up to this point where Jesus actually says with His own words, I have compassion. It's that word that we should remember. Um, it's a very strong word. Um, it's, it's a word that signifies that because of external circumstances and something that He sees as the data is poured into His mind and through His eyes, it reaches the inner man such that it causes a physiological response. Um, it's, it's the Old Testament equivalent of being moved in the bowels. You know the phrase, is, or at least you know the feeling, right? Something happens, you watch something on the news, you hear of a story, um, you hear of the death of a loved one, you hear of something that is just unthinkable, um, and it causes your stomach to turn. Or maybe you just see, out of pity, something or someone, um, some circumstances, and it just causes your heart to drop down into your chest. Um, immediate heartburn. That's exactly what Jesus is conveying here. That is, he looks out upon the people, um, Jesus is wrought with compassion into such that as a human, as a man, um, it actually causes a physiological response that it takes his breath away. Um, he feels it in his gut. He looks at the people and he sees something in them, he sees something about them that moves him to compassion. Christ is uh, revealing here that this is an attribute that he possesses. Uh, and he's saying here, I have this. Compassion is my, an attribute that I contain. It's an attribute of God. Psalm, it reminds us of Psalm 78 and verse 35 when it says, Then they remembered that God was their rock and the Most High God their Redeemer. Nevertheless, they flattered Him with their mouth and they lied to Him with their tongue for their heart was not steadfast with Him nor were they faithful in His covenant. But He, being full of compassion forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time He turned their, he turned His anger away. Why? Because He was compassionate. He did not stir up all of His wrath, for He remembered that they were but flesh. He sees the Creator-Creation distinction in such a way that he, he looks at them and He sees the fallen curse. He sees the ramifications and the consequences of sin. Uh, similar to last week as He looks into that deaf man, He has a great sigh. There's something that physiological that he responds to seeing this man that causes him and moves him to a certain act. Um, that's what we're talking about. It reminds us of Psalm 111.4 that he has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. and this, It goes on to say in the Psalms uh, 111. He has, it's manifested like this. He's given food to those who fear him. He will be ever mindful of his covenant. He has declared to His people the power of His works in giving them the heritage of the nations. That God is compassionate, and because He's compassionate, uh, He doesn't respond to the circumstances like we respond to the circumstances. You know, I look at the circumstances, you look at the circumstances, we watch the news, what happens? Oftentimes, we don't have the ability like God has, like Christ has. Um, we, re- we, we react, we don't act. We take in the data and we initially emotionally respond. And we often do it inappropriately. And that's exactly what you're going to see the disciples do here in just a moment that later on the disciples are going to interpret the data in a superficial and inappropriate way. Why? Because of something that they just did, a failure, a sin. Um, They're not going to act like Christ acts. Christ does not look at the circumstances and react. He takes in all of the data and He acts appropriately, um, considering the situation. He takes in and He interprets the data appropriately, and He says at this moment, these people, an appropriate response is compassion. Compassion. Um, It comes from the Latin, which literally means to suffer with. Or to suffer for. Or to come along with. That God's compassion is seen primarily um, and most vividly in Him taking upon human flesh and coming um, as us, for us, to accomplish what we could not. Um, And that He comes here and He looks at these people and He sees these people without food for three days. And that's all the text that we have. You know, We could look into it and we could say that there was something deeper than that. That it was some spiritual need. That they, they needed to be fed and they, they needed to be fed the word of God and things. But it doesn't say that. And it literally says that an appropriate response to seeing people without food is compassion upon them. Thus it causes you to act. Why? Because it caused him to act. That any person, Jew or Gentile with a need, seemed to elicit the compassion of Christ. He demonstrates the compassion here for something as simple as food. The compassions of Christ are moved simply to know, or the compassion of Christ is, is simply moved and elicited just to know that someone is, is hungry. You now one writer writes these words confront Jesus with a lost soul or a tired body, and his first instinct was compassion, which was wrought in the opportunity and the ability to help. Jesus turned no lost soul away. Um, that truly desired to be fed, nor any lost body. He says if they go away, they'll faint, they'll collapse. It literally means to be unstrung like a bow. Uh, many of you are hunters, or at least you have a common knowledge of a bow. What happens when you cut the string? It collapses, it loses all tension. He says that these people, I see them, and these people will collapse if I send them home without any food. Thus it causes him, him to act. What happens? The same thing that happened previously. He looks at his disciples and his disciples look at him (laughs) and they're wondering which one's going to do something. Jesus, of course, isn't wondering, but he prompts them. And his disciples look in verse number four, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven. Again, very familiar. Which would raise a question, which raises a question in many skeptics' minds. Is this the same account? Because surely they would remember, right? And they do remember. Um, I honestly am going to offer you an opinion here. I don't think that he's questioning them as if they don't remember. I think they do. I think it's more of a rhetorical question. Um, I think it's more of a question prompting the Lord in a similar way that they did the last time. Um, In a sense saying, what are you going to do? Um, Are you going to do anything? I don't think it's a doubt about his power, but the possibility, um, a doubt about his purpose. After all, these are Gentiles. And the question I don't believe here is, um, God, Jesus, can you do it, but would you do it for a Gentile? I think that that's what he's getting at. And they come to the recognition and realization, just like in the previous miracle, that if these people are going to be fed, don't look at us. <laughs> we don't have the ability. But at the same time, he understands that they get into the boat. and um, The disciples understand that they get into the boat in the previous and they leave and they go to other places. And as far as we can tell, the miracle was never performed before. Jesus is not a, a genie in a bottle and a right-handed slave um, to perform all the desires of the, um, of the disciples. That he has a purpose in his miracles. And thus, maybe they're trying to clue in, is it your purpose now to perform the miracle at, um, that is before us like you had before? And thus, I think it's rhetorical. So he commanded the multitude to do the same thing that he did previous, again, to sit down on the ground, and he gave, and he took seven loaves and gave, them, um, gave thanks, broke it, and gave them to his disciples and set before them, and they set before them the multitude. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to them, um, set them before them as well. So they ate and were filled, just like the same, the previous. And they took up seven large baskets. That would be one thing that would part, right? The last was 12 large baskets. Um, they took up seven large baskets and leftover fragments. And now those who are eaten were about 4,000. So 4,000 men here, as far as we can tell, um, filled to the gorge as well. Satisfied there literally means to fill to the brim um, and overflowing. It's not as if um, Jesus is just feeding them to satisfy them in a way that we would use use it where there's no more hunger. Literally, the word means to be overfilled, to be gorged. Um, And that's exactly what He does. You know, when Jesus fills, He fills to the brim. He fills to overflow. And then He sends them away. And immediately he gets into the boat with his disciples and he comes to the region of Dalmanutha. So what's the message? I'm going to simply give you the reason that I believe that this miracle is here. Much like in the book of Acts. If you remember in the book of Acts, what happens at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit comes down and empowers who? The Jewish believers. What you're going to find later on is that there is... Uh, Seemingly a a similar episode of Pentecost that happens not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. To signify that God not only comes to the Jew, but He also comes to the Gentiles. I believe that this portion of Scripture is here um, because of the location which is primarily a Gentile region. That Jesus Christ is coming through to drop the crumbs, to illustrate that salvation is not only to the Jew, but also to the Gentile. That God's divine compassion is not only for the covenant people of God, the chosen nation, but it's always and always has been and always will be also for the Gentiles. That Christ is sufficient to provide not only for the needs of the Jew but also for the Gentile, and this should this should make you praise God. You know, like one the proper response given all the data and a proper response to this is is to say praise God. You say why? Because that's us. You and I, we are Gentiles. We are not Jews. Had the gospel stayed in the confines of uh, the borders of the nation of Israel and had God's intent only ever been for that nation to preserve and to protect and to save them and to send them on into eternity and that we were just dogs undeserving of crumbs, then today America may not even exist. You know why? Because the gospel went to the Gentiles and went to the nations and thus um, this nation was born. Right? Uh, and out of out of Christian Uh, a past and and, and the the foundation of Christianity being laying in nations prior to this. But more than that, the gospel went forth to us. You know, that you today have the gospel, I have the gospel, and the nations have the gospel, and the gospel reaches the world. Why? Because Jesus Christ and His purpose and plan went to the Gentiles. That He is the bread of life and the water of life, not only for the Jew or the Israelite, but also for the Gentile, for us. The Gentile who is outside the covenant promise of Israel. Who are aliens and strangers to the commonwealth. They are without God in Christ. But they are still accountable to Him in Adam. Judgment still lies upon them. And you know what? They knew that. They had simply created a paradigm. that These people outside the nation were unsavable. That's what the nation of Israel did. At least the, the religious elite, the leaders... They were unsavable because they were undesirable. They believed that the Gentiles were undesirable, that God did not and could not ever want them, therefore they were never to be saved. At the same time, they had an overinflated view of themselves, and that God was bound to them by virtue of birthlight, because they were the chosen race. They were the people of God. And even in their disobedience and abandonment of the Word, uh, they were the eternal apple of God's eye. Jesus' miracle here is more than simply common grace. Or God um, seeking to fill the tummies of these people as He extends to the Gentiles bread and fish. I believe it's an illustration of God's desire to reach out to the Gentiles by way of Israel. And to teach them that He is able to sustain them if they will come to Him and eat of the bread of life by faith. That you and I, that, that, that was the point of the entirety of the, the, the miracle previous. If you were to go to John chapter 6, as we went to before, and we're not going there today, the point was not to satisfy them in their stomachs, or in their bellies, or in their mouths. Because that's what they came back for. They came back after the boat ride, and they're like, you know, where's breakfast at, Jesus? And he's like, you, I, I can see into your hearts and I know that you came just for that, but that wasn't the point of the miracle. The point of the miracle was, is I am the bread of life. That I am able to sustain you. That I am um, sustenance for you. And that I am the water of life. And anybody who drinks of me um, will never thirst again. Thus, you need to come unto me and you need to eat by faith. Um, and that's his message not only to the Jew, but that's his message to the Gentile. that's his message to Kingsport. That's his message to the tri That's his message to America. And that's his message to the world all throughout every generation and every geographical location that the gospel is to go forth and to teach men that they are without Christ alien and strangers outside of him even if you are within the nation of Israel and you are outside of Christ if you have not eaten of him by faith and that it is um, and it is incumbent upon every man every woman and every child uh, to come to him by faith and that he is sufficient to meet every single need that you have that's the message you know what And that is going to rub the Jewish elite (laughs) um, the wrong way from now until next Tuesday. Um, That's exactly what we see happen in verse 11 and 12. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why, quote, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. Which is extremely interesting. Because pretty much Jesus is saying, I'm sufficient for every need. But he's saying, I'm not going to give you another sign. I'm not going to give you what you want to these folks. Who? Well, this passage tells us the Pharisees and Herod. He's going to say Herod in verse 15. Um, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Um, If you were to go to Matthew 16, you'd see the parallel account of this passage. Um, And you'd also see that the Sadducees were there as well. Um, The Pharisees, so you see that group, the Pharisees, you see the Sadducees, and you see um, Herod. There was a group known as the Herodians. We would fall under um, the teaching and the uh, morals and the ethics of um, Herod Antipas. So we see these three groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. Who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the legalists of the day. Um, they were the ritualists, they were the traditionalists, they were the ones who wanted to read into every single. Um, they were <laughs> They were similar to uh, uh, the liberals of the day actually um, who read into the constitution what they want to read into it, you know. Uh, they take a liberal, they, they think of themselves as legalists and constitutionalists or people who uphold the word but they read in the penumbra, you know, the shadows. And they pull out of it things like abortion and other things which really aren't there. And the legalists were were bad for that. The Pharisees would look into it and they would read into things that weren't actually into the text. But all the while saying that we uphold the text. They did that with the word of God, thus creating new traditions of men. Um, They were self-acclaimed and self-attested defenders of the faith, carrying the sword, um, wanting to preserve the word of God. They were separatists. They separated themselves from everyone, from Rome, from Greece, even from within themselves, even the common Jewish people. They were the religious elite, the leaders of the religious day. Um, They would work with no one except for themselves. And sometimes they wouldn't even work with themselves because of nuances of the traditional beliefs. Then you had the Sadducees. The Sadducees were actually the liberalists or the rationalists of the day. Um, They're not mentioned a whole lot in Scripture. Um, They weren't the theologians of the people. Um, They ran the temple. They were oftentimes uh, extortionists. They extorted money um, by um, the common people, the common Jewish people would bring sacrifices and they would um, run the uh, staff over them and they would, um, according to Old Testament law, they had to bring a perfect lamb, a perfect sacrifice. Oftentimes what would happen, the Sadducees would extort money um, because they would take the lamb and they would say that it was unfit and then they would go and sell it in the market. Um, they were liberals. They didn't care about the Word of God. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They denied the existence of demons and, um, and, and angels. They were skeptics according to the supernatural. They weren't separatists at all. You know, if, it, if, it, if, it, if they could earn a dollar by working with Rome, they would. If they could earn a dollar by working with Greece, they would. Um, they, they had very little actual absolute morals or ethics. They rejected the scriptures. They rejected the prophets. They rejected tradition. And most days, um, Acts 23 says they actually um, they were at the throats of the uh, Pharisees. Um, they didn't like the Pharisees. The Herodians were the secularists of the day. Um, they were following Herod Antipas and um, other Herods, um, just depending upon what sector they wanted to be a part of. Um, they were the nationalists. They were the ones um, just pursuing and upholding um, politics mean um, a number of things. Um, you say, why do you go through all of that? Because these are the men withstanding Jesus. Um, so that you can get an, a kind of an idea of the darkness of the day. Which is really interesting. Um, but when you think about that, um, why? Because um, these are three people who should have never been together. I mean, it, it always intrigues me about how darkness unites for a common purpose of dispelling the light. When given any of the other venue or circumstances or environment, they would have literally slit each other's throats. And you see that even within the Word of God. And you see that not only in history, but you see that even today. It amazes me how um, all the darkness of the world can gather together and work together and labor together with opposite virtues and morals and ethics um, to, to put out the light to battle Christianity. It amazes me that the liberal left can work with Islam, you know? Um, Because if they had any idea of what Islam taught or believed for a moment um, what they taught about things like homosexuality and the transgender movement, um, then they would not be working together at all. But you can see, um, in Washington, and you can see in movements like Black Lives Matter and in many other places and organizations, all of these people gathering together to do what? To withstand the light, to withstand the Christianity, to withstand. And that's exactly what they do here. They come to Jesus seeking a sign from heaven, it says, why? To test him. You know, uh, the concept of seeking a sign to authenticate a prophet is actually unscriptural. Um, um, it can actually be virtuous. Why? Because in the Old Testament, the only way to, um, to, to dispel or to work through whether a false prophet was there to, was to seek a sign. Um, so there's no doubt in my mind that um, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes are coming, and the Pharisees especially are saying, we're just following the scriptural protocol, you know, like show us a sign as if Jesus hadn't already done enough signs, as if he hadn't already done enough wonders. But the purpose wasn't truly to seek a sign. The scripture teaches us here that the desire of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the um, Herodians was to um, seek such a sign to discredit the Lord. Coming from the Pharisees, the the request really denotes a readiness to be convinced, but not a readiness to be convinced, but an excuse for refusing to respond to the clear evidence already available in Jesus' teaching and ministry. That they come hearing, no doubt, of the signs of Christ. That He's able to heal. That He's able to give bread. And they seek more. They they desire more. Matthew Henry says that, uh, quote, they demanded a sign tempting Him, not in hopes that He would give it to them, but that, that, that they might be satisfied, but in hopes that He would not, that they might imagine themselves to have a pretense for their infidelity. That the asking of of signs is most often just that. Um, It's a pretense for unbelief. A reason not to believe. Then it's not your fault, right? It actually sounds somewhat virtuous. If only God would do this, then I would do that. If only, you know, I, I I really want God to show me, but He just won't. And thus they carry on in their disbelief. True faith in God. Does not require miracles to be established or confirmed in the faith. You know, does the existence of the Almighty so lack in the world all around us that there is a necessity laid upon him to give us more than what we already have? That's the question. You know? That that God had already performed in Christ, but even more than he had to. Now the Bible teaches us in Romans chapter 1 and 2 particularly that the world is testimony. You can go back to Psalm chapter number 19 the heavens declare the glory of God that uh, every time a star twinkles and every time the sun rises and every time the wind blows through the trees, that every time a baby is born and you hear that first cry, that every time you cough, every time you sneeze, every time that all of the um, activities, the molecular level, happen within your body and you carry out a natural natural, uh, engagement with the world, every single time it declares the glory of God. It declares His existence. It displays um, His attributes, His power, His ability. This is what the Bible teaches. And if that wasn't enough, God wrote it upon your heart that babies aren't born atheists, that infants don't come into the world, um, that you won't find an isolated tribe somewhere in the indigenous Africa that has been um, disconnected from the world for centuries that don't have an altar and don't have a graveyard. Why? Because they know there's a God and they know that he's wrong with them, therefore they bring sacrifices. That it's laid upon the conscience of every man that there is a God. How do they know that? Because they look into the world and they see something that could not have just came out of nothing. Thus they conclude that there is a God. Um, it's general revelation, not necessarily specific, but it's enough to hold men accountable um, and responsible. And Paul says in Romans chapter 2, without excuse. But, 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 but then the compassion of God, right? God looks into the world. Jesus Christ, um, and part of that triune being, the Spirit um, enabling. And, and, and He looks and he, it's as if he, we could say um, faithfully that, that He looks at the, at the world and He has compassion. He's moved in some sense. Full of compassion, I'm um, ready to send His only Son into the world. That's going beyond what He um, is is uh, should even have to go beyond, right? Like it, it's clear, it's evident, and you still rebel. So what am I going to do? Uh, I send my only Son willfully, joyfully, cheerfully, sacrificially um, to go above and beyond. And still today, that's not good enough for some people. It wasn't good enough for the Pharisees. It wasn't good enough for the scribes. Jesus steps out beyond the boundaries of anything that of of of, of any uh, responsibility to mankind. Covenants himself with people. Enters into this gracious arrangement to give his only son um, on behalf of a particular people more than he ever um, had to do. Um, and thus, and people throughout the ages, not only there, but in days past and in days present, still require more of God. Like how much more? How many more miracles do you need? You know how many more days on this life do you have to wake up and look into the heavens and reject the God uh, who created you? you know? The responsibility is not laid upon God to perform more like a magician or an entertainer. The responsibility is laid upon us to bow before the King of kings, the Lord of lords, but also the Savior of all mankind. And the world cries out to you and to me and to every single being every single day. Even without eyes to see and ears to hear, as we mentioned last week, um, or a voice to speak, Helen Keller, who is um, blind and deaf and mute, um, understood within her conscience and in, in creation that there was a God. She just said she didn't know his, his name. And that's the true, that's a reality for all mankind. A true faith in God does not require miracles to be established, um, but it sees by the eye of faith. One unknown poet writes these words One asked the sign from God, and day by day the sun arose in pearl, and scarlet said, each night the stars appeared in bright array each morning the thirsty grass each morning the thirsty grass with dew was wet the corn failed not in harvest nor the vine and yet he saw no sign and yet he saw no sign voltaire a french philosopher love him you know, because he, he was, he was, a, he was a, an honest atheist. Um, he writes these words, a despair for his soul and for men like him um, and disagree with him totally, but at least he was an honest atheist. He says these words, Even if a miracle would be wrought in the open marketplace before a thousand sober witnesses, I would rather mistrust my senses than admit a miracle. At least he was honest. He said, I could not come with all the evidence marked in all the world with a thousand witnesses whom you could trust. Um, even if that would happened, I would not believe. I would not believe. That's the mark of a true unbelief. That is why um, Jesus' words come so harsh to these men because they did not come seeking a sign to actually believe. Why? Because had he performed a sign, they would not have actually believed. They did not want to believe. They would have explained it away. It was a pretense for unbelief. And thus Jesus actually gives them what they desire. They didn't truly desire a sign. They desired not to believe. So Jesus gave them what they wanted. He gave them a reason not to believe. Therefore he performed no sign. And what you see here is you see... um, And at the same time he's preaching to these men but he's also preaching to them graciousness. Um, in some sense, and compassion upon them. Because even in the quotation there, why does this generation seek a sign? Um, Contained within that is pregnant Old Testament um, preaching and teaching. There's no doubt that it should have brought to mind to them the generation in the wilderness in Deuteronomy chapter 32, um, Psalm chapter number 95, when they sought the sign. And Israel, Israel, in some sense, sets as a judge over God, demanding him to show himself true and worthy of their worship. Let no man hear, let no person in this generation, let this remind us of the nation of Israel, and let this remind us of these men who sit as, God, as God's judge um, over him, requesting and demanding something to believe when he's already done that. That they would have been familiar with the Old Testament. They would have understood what he meant by this generation. That it was a generation in the wilderness who would not believe um, until he showed them a sign. Matthew 12 says, Only a wicked and evil generation demands a sign. Why? Because the one who demands a sign has the idea that divine revelation um, and sovereignty of God can be controlled and judged by me and my mind. That I sit as the judge over. It's an attitude of unbelief motivated by arrogance and pride. God Listen, God in his sovereignty determines when and where he does signs, when and where he does miracles. And to stand up and say, God, give me a sign and then I'll believe is a person who stands as a judge over God and puts himself in the place as God over God. Um, What pride, what arrogance. You, me, the president of the United States, the king of Norway, the prime minister of the UK does not set the ground rules. God does. God does. That's exactly what the Bible teaches. That's what Romans 1 teaches. That's what Romans 2 teaches. Why? So that they can discredit the Lord um, and carry on with their secularism and in their unbelief. You know, it's similar to children. Children do it all the time, right? You know, you send one child to the other with a message and And it comes with authority they come as a messenger with one bearing authority and what is the other child maybe your children don't do this but my children do it quite often um they say prove it (laughs) you know mom said you need to do this prove it (laughs) all right i'm telling mom you can't prove okay okay i'll do it Uh, and that's exactly the way it goes that's what the that's exactly what the and why do they do it why do the children do it so they can carry on with the activity that they desire so they can carry on playing their games or they can carry on with whatever activity so that they can thwart responsibility so they can do it as long as they can that's exactly what these men were doing they were um, they desired to carry on in the activity that they wanted to do um, without any responsibility to god so what did they do they thwarted the messenger or they sought to thwart him did they really need another sign Nicodemus in John chapter 3 verse 2 says we know that you've come from God as a teacher for only you only God could do this sign no one could do these signs unless God was with him that they didn't need more signs so Jesus carries on in verse number 13 and he left them and getting into the boat again departed to the other side and now the disciples had forgotten to take bread and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat and then he charged them saying take heed Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying it is because they have no bread. So Jesus sighs deeply in his spirit, is what it says in verse number 12. Um, but he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Um, it was a sign that he so we saw um, just a week ago. It was a sign that moved him. Why? Because of the unbelief. Um, because of the desire for um, uh, of a sign to carry on in their legalism, or to carry on in their liberalism, or to carry on in their secular secularism. Um, so God, Jesus Christ, in human form, sighs. It moves him at just the the, the opposition, the hard-heartedness, the callousness of unbelief that in the midst of all of the activity of God, in the midst of all of the um, authenticity, in the midst of all of the display of his glory, they continue not to believe. Thus, it moves him in his being. And he leaves them. He leaves them. You know, the language there in verse 13 that he left them most... Um, most Christians throughout the ages have believed that that's a demarcation that he's done with them. You know, in days past, we see him preach the gospel. in days past, we see him reach out to this group, but no more. There's a, there's a demarcation in the gospels here that, that, that he moves away from the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Rodians, and now he focuses upon the disciples. There's a, there's a turn in the gospel here from them. He leaves them in some sense. Romans chapter 1, he leaves them to themselves. Why? Because that's what they really want. They desire that. That's why they seek signs. They want to carry on in their legalism, their liberalism. And God often does that. He, he doesn't um, always um, bear with them forever, but, but for a time. He he, only stri- he strives with the heart of man for a time. He's patient and long-suffering to a porn, point, and then He encourages us, as He does Himself, not to cast pearls before swine. So He turns, and He turns to His disciples, and He warns them of that very thing in verse 15. Take heed. Beware. Um, why of the leaven of the scribes and the the Pharisees. Um, And you may remember that leaven is is an illustration of permeation, generally um, speaking of something evil, although not always. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he and he desires for them to know something. So, so we see the compassion of our Lord in verses one through ten. We see the grief of our Lord in verse eleven and twelve. The, the, these passages, this passage, is just impregnated with the affections of Christ, which move him towards certain activities. And then here we see him as the concern that he has for his disciples. Um, the concern that he has for his disciples, that they would not be like the Pharisees or the scribes, that they would be not be like the Sadducees, and that they would understand the Um, the weight that comes with that type of theology and that type of hypocrisy. Matthew 16 gives us another illustration um, that refers to um, the leaven being the doctrine or the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the Herodians, which was essentially um, hypocrisy. Um, They were hypocrites. They didn't want a sign. They actually just wanted to disbelieve so they could carry on in their unbelief and do and fulfill the desires of their hearts. Jesus warns them against that. Um, In verse 15, verse 16, they didn't get it at all. (laughs) Um, The disciples hear that, and you know what they think about? It says they reasoned among themselves, they disputed among themselves, they, they discoursed among themselves, saying, Jesus said that because they didn't bring the bread. They didn't bring the bread. He says, that, like Jesus is saying this because we don't have any bread. You remember the bread that they were supposed to bring, the seven baskets? They didn't bring any. I mean, this was actually different than the previous baskets. These were full baskets. I mean, There's a different underlying word there that speaks of a Gentile basket that was huge. It was like a coffin. I mean, it was like a hamper. I mean, they were supposed to bring so much bread and throw it into the boats. And um, he, they, they think that Jesus is kind of upset with him because he mentions bread because they didn't bring the bread. You know, Um That's what he says. They reasoned among themselves saying it is because we have no bread. Jesus, being aware of it, says to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? Like, you don't get it at all. You didn't understand anything that I just said to you. That's exactly what he says. Do you not yet perceive or not understand? These are two words that are impregnated in them. is is not only knowledge, but the ability to connect the dots. He's saying you didn't didn't connect the dots at all. It's like a small child. It's like me on most days, you know? (laughs) It's like I'm lost in the things, my failures and my sins, and I miss the whole point. I don't connect the greater picture, you know. That's exactly what they do. They interpret superficially what God is trying to teach them through their failure and through their sin, and they miss the whole point, you know. They, they can't stop thinking about the thing that they just did wrong, to actually sit and, and to calculate, and they can't move past that. Um, thus, they don't understand exactly what God is trying. Jesus is trying to teach them here. He says, is your heart still, yet still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Um, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000. See, it's not an issue of knowledge. Okay, why? Because they're going to get the answer right. This is a catechism question. You know, this is a, a, a catechism question. and They get it right, you know. Um, what is the chief end of man? To glorify, to, to enjoy, to, to, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Um, like You got that right. But do you understand anything that I just did? You know, like we as being biblical, we as being conservative, we as being Bible believers, we as being reformed, you know, we as being Baptists, we, we uphold these things as if, you know, they actually mean something, you know, externally, inherently, you know, why? Because we know the confession and we have the 1689 and it's orthodox and it's, and it's this and it's that. And we have the catechisms and we have the fathers. Does that sound familiar? You know, the Jews. They had the fathers, they had the covenants, they had the oracles, they had the promises. They had all these things and they amounted to absolutely nothing because they lacked perception, understanding, and they lacked ultimately faith. It wasn't because they lacked knowledge. They had the knowledge. Get the question. When I broke the five loaves of the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said to him, 12. You're right. You got it. You got it. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. They said, seven. That's exactly right. So he said to them, then how is it you don't understand? Like, why don't you get it? Like, you were there. You saw it. I sat them all down. I filled it up. You heard the sermon the next day. They came for it. The bread of life. You saw in the storm. You saw this. You saw that. God is so patient. <laughs> you know? And it's almost comical. It could have been comical. You know, it's like a small child and you're saying something and they take it extremely hard literal and you're like, man, I didn't mean that at all. And uh, my kids are like that all the time. There's an age and a stage that they go through and you say something literal, and they take it, they say, you say something um, and they take it literally and they totally do the opposite of what you want them to do. That's exactly what the disciples were doing. So what does Jesus do? You know, um, verse 11 and 12, does he do just like he does with the impenitent unrepentant, callous, hard-hearted Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians. Thank God he doesn't. You know, thank God um, that he treats his children differently. That yes, you see a hard-heartedness. Yes, you see a hard-headedness. Yes, you see a lack of perception. Yes, you see um, somewhat of a lack of um, understanding. But Jesus is patient. Because it's not a, a permanent blindness. It's a temporary blindness. It's a lack of understanding. So God, Jesus, in Jesus, takes according to His Spirit these, um, these disciples, these little ones, these children along with them, comes alongside them to help them understand. That's what you find in Matthew 16 um, and the parallel account. In Matthew 16, you get a, a nuance that you don't get in um, Mark In verse number 10, we pick up in the same spot, uh, Matthew 16. Nor the seven loaves, nor four thousand, how many large baskets you took up. How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread. (laughs) You know, because that's something that really came to their mind. They thought about the bread, them um, having a lot of dietary issues and dietary laws. Um, leaven is often, uh, one rabbi, you know, just equated it with evil. And he's bringing up leaven. He's talking about bread. He's doing this. Um, we're not really to be afraid of leaven. is what they ultimately came to. Um, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse number 12, then they understood. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that they did not have insight initially they did not have understanding initially why? because they were wrapped up in previous failure and possibly um, somewhat even sin Um, they failed to remember they failed to take in all the data they failed to interpret appropriate thus it led them to an inappropriate conclusion enter the compassion of our Lord not only for the physical nature of these beings but also for their hearts What does he do? He doesn't just cast them aside, but he comes alongside them. He takes them by the hand and he says, now let's walk. (laughs) Let me uh, take you once again and help you remember of what was happening so that you do understand. You see here a basic form of discipleship. You see here that Jesus gives an example of how to act according to the circumstances Oftentimes, as I said earlier, you and I, we fail in understanding and perceiving, connecting the dots. Not because we don't know. Because you know and I know. My children often disobey. Not because they don't know. Not because they don't have the data and the knowledge and understand. They, they, they know the rules. They know this. They know that. And Sometimes it's just like the Pharisees and Sadducees. They just want a reason to disobey. And then sometimes they just disobey because they had not put it all together. What a faithful parent does is a faithful parent comes alongside his child um, and he leads them in the truth and he leads them through it. And that's exactly what you find here. Jesus takes them through it slowly. How does he do it? He doesn't teach them anything new. He calls them to remember. And that's exactly what they do. While they they reacted in a way of superficial knowledge um, that, that disallowed them to Um, see the truth. They had to move past that. Thus they interpreted Jesus' point through their failure. They were supposed to take the bread and they didn't. Um, Thus Jesus leads them along patiently to show them the reality. And finally they understand. They get it. Praise God they got it. And God continues to do that throughout your life and throughout my life. Verse 14 comes as a, as a rebuke and a reminder to us. Now the disciples had forgotten. Not only did they forgotten to take bread, but they had forgotten what God had done. And that is a reminder to us today. How do we apply this passage? There's a hundred ways, right? Number one, we look at this passage and we see that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. Therefore, you should believe there is more than enough evidence today within the scriptures, contained with outside the scriptures, within the world, within your own conscience, that today it is incumbent upon you and laid the responsibility is laid upon you to believe. You say if God would do this, no. You say if God would do that, no. God is not a magician. God is not your slave. God is not incumbent upon God to do anything more than God has already done. But graciously, He reaches out with His Son, Jesus Christ. Graciously, He reaches out into creation. Graciously, He has reached out into your heart. And He has made it more than evident. Therefore, you are without excuse. Therefore, believe. Believe that He is the Son of God. That's why He recorded this miracle. That's why we read this miracle. And today, He deserves your worship. You don't deserve His um, Sign from heaven, he deserves your worship. Therefore, believe, believe. Number two, rejoice. Why? Because you're a Gentile. Rejoice, because Ephesians chapter two and three, the great mystery that that that, that now the Gentiles are made partakers of the commonwealth, made partakers of the covenant, and made partakers of the new covenant. Therefore, um, therefore, Jesus Christ is sufficient for your every need. <coughs> that while the Jews had an advantage. Um, They did not have an eternal advantage that we are now made into one man, one church, one household of God, and that every Jew and Gentile that comes to Him by faith in Christ, um, He saves, and and we all have an eternal reward, and He is sufficient for our every need. He is our bread. He is our water. Take and eat freely today. Take and drink freely today. Um, He is yours, if you will, by faith come to Him. Eat of Christ. Number three, take off the old man and put on the new. You know, whenever I look at the compassion of Jesus Christ, I have to think that's an attribute that I I should have. You know? Take unto me, you know, come unto me all you that labor heavy laden. I am, um, you know, and I will give you rest. For I am meek and lowly at heart. Here in this passage, we see the heart of Christ. It is a compassionate heart. It is a patient heart. It is a low heart. It is a humble heart. Um, It is a heart of grief over unbelief. It is a heart of... Patience for those who lack in perception. It is just God condescending from cha- uh, at chapter 8, verse 1 to chapter 8, verse 21. It is God coming to those in common grace. It is God coming to those with a sigh of grief over those who, who just uh, oppose Him outright in unbelief. Um, it is just patience and compassion to those whom are His, His children, but yet they still do not understand. It is God. Just coming, condescending, taking upon himself, um, and pursuing those who would not otherwise pursue him. Um, do you share in Christ's compassion? You know, do you look out into the world and see the world and just say, "Man, that's a bed they made. Let them lie in it." Or does God prick your heart because you've taken off selfishness and put upon? Christ and put upon compassion because that's a fruit of the Spirit and it was contained within that human body of Christ so much that he looked out and it was an appropriate response. You know it's an appropriate response to look at America today and be upset and to be righteously angry but also just to weep over their indifference and to weep over their apathy and to weep over all that God has accomplished in this nation and the gospel witness that has went out before. Do you know that there should be a sigh of groaning within our hearts over the nation and over your families and over um, the church and the state of it and the world and the condition that it's in? Like that's a manly response. I know it doesn't sound manly to weep and to wo- and to moan and to groan, um, but our forefathers and our forebears and the Apostle Paul and Jesus Christ himself um, says and is, is, is a testimony that that's an appropriate response. Or do you just look at them and say, like, they made their bed and they'll lie in it? You know, when you walk down the road and you see a homeless man, like, and, I, and I understand. There's a social gospel out there that just makes that the ultimate end, and, and makes that the ultimate goal, and thinks that th- through some way or somehow, you know, that they're going to change the world by um, by social endeavors. Let me tell you that that's a that's eleven of the of the Sadducees, and don't you believe it for one moment. But that doesn't take away the fact that embodied in Christ, embodied in the Triune God, is the compassion of God. It uh, manifests itself in selflessness and sacrifice, such that whether or not they re- like, whether or not like they come or not, he still does it, right? Like it's not even all about himself in some in some sense. Right, four thousand people. How many of those do you think believed? You know what? He still fed them. Sometimes we make our our graciousness and our compassion contingent upon what we receive, and that's arrogant, and that's pride, and that's selfishness masquerading itself as humility. You know. I go through that with myself. I go through that with my children. You know, when they give a compliment and it doesn't return the way that they ought to, you know. I'm like, honey, why did you give it? Because if he gave it just for the wrong reason, just so that they would give you accolades and just pour it out upon your back, how great you are, then, then you shouldn't have given the compliment at all. You give a compliment, you give graciousness, and you give, why? Simply because that's who you are, because that's who Christ is, and he embodied it and you're to embody it. So whenever I see things like this, I see the compassion of Christ. And I see that we do what we do because we are who we are, whether or not we convert this world or not. But we also recognize that through that is often a means to bring, that God uses to bring people to himself. Why? Because that's when we shine forth as light to a lost and a dying world, as we assume um, and take upon the attributes of Christ. I look at this and I see compassion and I think, man, I am such an uncompassionate person. I work in healthcare and it's just like it comes with the turn, it comes with the game, you know? You think that we would be the more caring and compassionate people. You know, uh, but oftentimes we become the cynics because we see it every single day. We see the depravity of man. We see fallen nature. We see them walk in we see them use and we see them abuse. So oftentimes what we want to do is just totally harden our hearts. Why to protect ourselves from the pain of being used and abused? Listen, Christians will be, always have been, and will always be used and abused. Like you need to know that. But you still err on the side of graciousness, you still keep your heart. Why? Because it's in the heart that undergirds the activities. That actually makes anything meaningful. You know, this, this passage is impregnated with, with, the, with the affections of Christ. His concern for the church. His grief over unbelief. And His compassion for all mankind. Thus He acts. Thus He acts. Thus He feeds. Thus He brings along. Thus He disciples. And thus even He abandons. Um, and thus we come to this convicted... Um, I pray that we are not like Christ. But oh, how we ought to be. And how we are not to focus in on the failures and the sins of the past and, and think that this is all about us. But God in Christ through His Spirit just faithfully comes alongside us and takes us by the hand and leads us along um, to connect the dots. Son, this is not about you. you know. This is not about us. This is not about me. I make this often about me. you know. And there are certain things that... Um, in my family and even in this church that um, I have not been able to move forward at different times and maybe even now because of failures in the past. You know, it makes you think about that and think about that alone, right? You know, as a pastor failing in certain areas or um, offending certain people or doing things that you never intended to do and hurting people. It makes it difficult some days to make decisions in a family, in a home, in a organization in a church Um, and thus you thwart the desire of God and the plan of God you know what you're supposed to do in that time you're supposed to repent and move on you know get past that I know you lost I know you left the bread that's not the point repent and move on man like we're on the boat we're going other places we're doing other things I need you to understand do you understand this isn't about you this isn't about me this church is not about you it's not about me it's about the glory of Jesus Christ being displayed to a lost and a dying world And thus they looking and thus they seeing and they they being without excuse, not only because of the glory that manifests in the heavens, but the glory and the beauty of the garments of Christ's bride. You know, he deserves the world. You know, he's going to get the world. You know, he's going to secure the nation. He's going to secure it with his bride. Therefore, go let that, be willing to be gracious, and even when you're used and abused. That's be willing to be merciful, even when you're used and abused. Know that they're going to hate you. Why? Because they hated me. Love the church. Love the bride. Move on. Don't allow past failures um, to, to 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 allow you to superficially interpret the scriptures as if it's all about you. It's not. Repent. Move forward. Believe. That was their problem. They didn't believe. You know, most of us we we that, that's our problem. We have little faith because we don't believe. It's not a problem of, of knowing that we have the data, we just don't believe. And some of us, even as Christians, say, God, if you would just teach me more, right? That's not the issue. The issue is not of knowledge, and it's not of, of teaching often. It's often just faith. We act like the atheist who demands more, and if you give me more, then I will do. The, the problem of a lack of perception and understanding wasn't, wasn't because they didn't have knowledge. It was because they didn't have faith, Right? We're like, God, give us more and I'll believe and I'll I'll go in that direction. God, I'll be an evangelist. Just teach me more. No. You don't demand God to give you more. Right? That actually, knowledge. so, so, so we want to make knowledge the basis of faith. And in some sense it is. But oftentimes the basis of knowledge is faith. Right? You believe so that you may know. You don't know so that you may believe inherently in the Christian life. You believe so that you may know that he is the son of God. And therefore you go. Right, Like, you, like, like faith is, is the requirement of eating and, and drinking of Christ. Um, and therefore you do. If you're waiting to be the perfect evangelist, I'm going to tell you, uh, you're going to have to die to do that. Um, because that's the only place that you're going to be made perfect. That you believe God with the knowledge that you have. You put the dots together. You move past. You repent and you move on in whatever area of life it is. And you, know, you say, I've not been a faithful father. I just don't know how. Believe and God will help you. Have faith in him that what he has required of you, he is able to give you and empower you to do. You say, I just I don't know if I can be a good evangelist. You have enough knowledge, I almost guarantee that. You know? It's not a problem of knowledge or perception, understanding. The problem is you don't perceive or understand because you don't believe. We need more faith. We don't need more knowledge. Knowledge will only condemn. In some way it was gracious of, of Jesus not to even give them a sign. You know why? Because that would have made them more accountable to God for what they had. Over and over and over again throughout the, the testaments. The unbelievers are heaping up for themselves condemnation. Why? Because they know too much. Um, And it's actually a gracious act of God to restrain the knowledge, thus even lessening the consequences even in eternity. But oftentimes it's not about what we know. It's about how we apply that which we do know. And we see here Christ and all of his compassion and all of his concern for the bride and all of his grief over unbelief and it moves him. Um, to do and accomplish certain things. Does it move you? Does it move you? Does it move you? Do you feel as Christ feels? Has he affected you as Christ was affected? Or does he say to you this morning, why do you reason because you have no bread? Why are you lost in so many things? Do you not perceive or understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Do you not remember? Do you not remember? Do you not remember when Christ saved you? Do you not remember when he pulled you out of the world and gave you a new heart? Do you not remember um, all the glories of the Old Testament and the New Testament? Do you not uh, remember um, the providence of God in every area of your life, sustaining you and keeping you for this day? Do you not remember? Um, oftentimes it's God just seeking to remind us of His promises, of His character, of His nature. That's His M.O. You say, I don't perceive. I don't understand. I, I just don't know even know if I know. Well, then remember. I encourage you today to remember. Okay. Remember what you know about God. Remember um, God of the Old Testament. Remember God of the New Testament. More than that, remember God of your salvation and what He's accomplished in your life. And thus, I promise you, that's when the dots begin to be connected. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for your reminders. Father, we thank you for bringing us patiently along as we continually and honestly, Father, are most days. Ye of little faith, Um, Father, slow of understanding, hardened of heart, unable to see God's activity, All around us father some days we even resemble the world in that fashion the one reason we know that we are not of the world is because you faithfully continue to come back and lead us along as a child as a father to a child or as a mother to a child I'm graciously reminding us of the grace that you've extended to us God we are a knowing people I don't doubt that we are people Um, who knows the truth, who knows the gospel, who knows what you require of us, who even in some sense understands our responsibility. Father, I pray that you would help us to believe that such that it um, affects us and moves us to certain activity that is holy and appropriate. Help us to have an an exercise of self-control over our hearts and over our lives, not to react to the world the way that the world reacts, but to act within the world the way that Christ would act. Father, thus, putting on Christ and being a light to a lost and a dying world, there's no doubt that there's many of us, Father, who throughout the week are anxious and worrisome and fearful of all the things that are going on around us. Father, I pray that you would remind us of your faithfulness continually throughout the Word of God and among the people of God and throughout the songs that we sing and through prayers and through providence, Father, that you would just continue to give us faith and increase our faith as we remind us of who you are, your character, your nature, and what you desire to accomplish in us, Father. Help us not to cower down. Help us not to hunker um, in a tent somewhere, Father, but help us to be active in the world, um, being an example of how the church is to respond to such and environment in such circumstances. Help us to be a light, Father, to our children. Um, help our homes not to be a den of, of worry, fear, and anxiety, but, Father, of virtue, of activity, and of godliness to be an example not only to our children but to other families. Help this church to endorse the same, Father, to take off the old man and to put on the new, to take off Damon and to put on Christ. Father, would you enable us to do that? And would you believe that it's possible? Would you help us to believe that it's possible to accomplish because you have uh, sent your Son, and as we have died in Christ, you have raised us to walk in newness of life. You've given us our Spirit, your Spirit, Father. And, um, Father, would you enable us and give us the faith to believe that we can and will be different within the world. Why? Because that which was contained and embodied in Christ is now contained and embodied in us. And we share in his affections, thus we should share in his activity. Help us to be compassionate. Help us to be concerning, concerned, Father. Help us to be grieving over the world of, of disbelief. And, um, Father, help us to act in whatever areas that you have ordained for us to be, um, to be Christ-like and to do those things that Christ would do and to act as Christ would act because we act in his stead. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for your love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Help us, Father, to apply this passage to our lives in a meaningful and a godly way. In Jesus' name, amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing. One verse of number 80. As we end the service, I pray appropriately. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. Verse 1, I pray that as you sing it, you sing it with faith, amen, and you believe it, every word, that Christ is, is love and that He's manifested that love towards us. Amen.